Trump can never, ever again win a national election. Hello, and welcome to the interview. I'm Ada McLaughlin, the editor-in-chief of Mediaite. My guest this week is Andy McCarthy, a conservative writer and lawyer who has been on this podcast before. McCarthy is a contributing editor at the National Review, a Fox News contributor, and a former chief assistant U.S. attorney. I called up McCarthy to discuss this week's bombshell January 6th hearing, which featured testimony from Cassidy Hutchinson, an aide to Mark Meadows, who was the chief of staff for President Donald Trump in the final months of his administration. Hutchinson delivered stunning testimony, which revealed Trump's unhinged behavior in advance of and during the January 6th attack. I spoke to McCarthy about the hearings, if they have changed his opinion on whether Trump can and should be prosecuted, and what's next for the House Select Committee investigating the attack on the Capitol. Andy, thank you so much for coming on the show. Aiden, it's my pleasure. Let's jump right into it. This week, we had a surprise hearing from the House January 6th Committee featuring a sole witness, former White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson. You wrote a lengthy analysis of her testimony, which was pretty stunning. Um, You wrote it in the National Review, and you called the testimony devastating and evidence that Trump is singularly culpable for the Capitol riot. What did you find so devastating about this particular testimony? Well, I think it's two things, Aiden. First is one of the things I thought was really deficient about the uh, impeachment investigation right after the Capitol riot was the failure to peel back the curtain on what President Trump was doing, uh, not only in the lead up to January 6th, but in the in the minutes and hours that were critical during the riot. So we now have from a witness who has a lot of firsthand knowledge, a real look at uh, what was going on there, which was uh, which I, I think is a critically important uh, element of it. And I guess the second thing is it has I've always thought that this whole discussion about incitement was kind of a sideshow um, because what incitement does, I actually tried an incitement case back in the in the 1990s. So the idea of incitement, which is a very difficult uh, legal test and evidentiary proof in our law because of the First Amendment, is in incitement, you're criminalizing speech per se. So the fact that President Trump, uh, even if he did it in a kind of a lip service way, threw in the idea of peaceful protest a few times, that makes an incitement prosecution very complicated. But what prosecutors usually do with speech is we don't, the law doesn't criminalize speech per se. Prosecutors use speech as evidence of other crimes. And what I think you have here, based on the testimony we heard yesterday, is a situation where now, assuming the truth of Hutchinson's account, and I don't think there's any reason for her to to be lying about this, um, Trump was clearly aware just moments before he took the podium that you had a mob of heavily armed people. That was what this whole argument about whether the magnetometers should be taken away and whether armed people should be allowed to come. And I thought the critical things he says there are they're not here to hurt me, which mean, it implies that in, in his mind, he knows they're here to hurt someone. It's just not him. And the second thing he says, which I don't think has gotten enough attention, is uh, he says they can hear, they can come in, they can hear me, and then they can march to the Capitol. So 
he's very aware that you have a mob that's armed to the teeth that he is planning to to encourage to to march on the Capitol. And then as the testimony ensues, we find out that he not only intended them to do that, he wanted to participate. He actually wanted to lead them down there. So I think um, that knowledge um, opens up the, the possibility that you could prosecute for aiding and abetting the intimidation of federal officials which is a pretty serious crime. If it's just simple assault, which doesn't really require uh, the actual application of force, just a threat of it, that's a, like a one-year penalty. But the, the the statute goes up to 20 years if you're talking about you know people using potentially lethal, dangerous weapons. And I think the other thing, Aiden, is that on the much-discussed obstruction of congressional proceedings— uh, uh, liability, that potential. I've always been a naysayer on the idea that you could prosecute somebody for that on the basis of a frivolous legal theory. I, I just think it'd be a real mistake to go down the road of saying that there's a certain point where a, a legal theory gets so frivolous that uh, it crosses into fraud. I, I, I just think that's not someplace you want to go. But on the other hand, there's hundreds of people who've been who've been prosecuted in connection with the Capitol riot on the alternative theory that they forcibly intimidated Congress in a way that prevented the hearing from taking place. And I think that theory of the prosecution is much advanced if there's testimony that the president knew that he was essentially urging an armed mob to intimidate the Congress. You also wrote in that National Review piece that what Liz Cheney was doing with Hutchinson is similar to what prosecutors do with witnesses in grand juries insofar as she's drawing out testimony with no obligation to present the side of the defense. And you also noted that a lot of people get indicted on, you quote, far less evidence than the country heard in this hearing. How strong do you think the, the case is for prosecuting Trump at this point, knowing what we know from this hearing? I think it's a closer question at this point on prosecutorial discretion than whether there is a crime. I think that, you know, I've seen cases get charged with less evidence than this, but I'm also a firm believer in the idea that um, I, I think there needs to be a higher burden when you're talking about a prosecution that crosses into electoral politics. I, 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 act, I really think Bill Barr was very right when he said it's got to be an, a kind of a rudimentary meat and potatoes crime that people can wrap their brains around and understand. It's not a situation that that should lend itself to, you know, prosecutorial creativity and, you know, what crimes can I come up with uh, if I use the, uh, you know, fraud on the United States statute, which we see a lot of uh, uh, kind of uh, stretching of, uh, of things and pushing the envelope on. I think it's got to be a clear crime that people think he deserves to be prosecuted for, because if you don't have that, then half the people in the country are not going to be supportive of this. In fact, they'll take it, some of them will take it as an affront. And what it would lead to is a, a kind of a devolving spiral of revenge prosecutions, uh, which is a place I think we don't want to go because it, it screws up politics and it, it destroys the Justice Department as an institution. So I think it's got to be it's got to be a very clear 
crime. And I think these are clear crimes, but you got to make sure the evidence is very strong uh, that he really did intend to send a violent mob to the Capitol to intimidate these people in a way of influencing the way that they uh, that the way that they voted, the way they carried out the electoral count. And it, it's just got to be clear. If it's not clear, it's it's simply not worth doing because the downsides are too considerable. To go back to your, your comment about how Trump said, you know, he told his supporters to go peacefully and patriotically. Uh, you've criticized the committee for sort of omitting those comments uh, from their case, um, which I think, you know, I, I sort of agree with you that that would make their case stronger if they acknowledged that he did make those comments. Uh, and I was reading David French. He, he wrote a piece on this uh, that came out this morning, I think. And he said that while those comments were important, the new testimony shows how much they were. And he said he called it a drop of pacifism in an ocean of incitement. What's your take on those comments now after what we learned yesterday? Do they seem sort of like ass covering, really? Yeah, it's, it's uh, 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 ass covering is probably better than my uh, <laughs> lip lip service, but it's sure. the same <laughs> You know, it's the same, it's the same idea. Um, I, I also, you know, look, I, I guess I'm influenced by a couple of things. One is I was a, you know, I was a jury trial lawyer for a long time and you have to be forthright with the jury about the, you know, the downsides of your case and the weaknesses of it. You can argue from strength if you're, if you take that approach, but if you don't inform the fact finder of the weaknesses in your case and you let the other side do it, they become real problems because then you look to the jury like you're afraid of it, that you you know your case isn't good enough to withstand it. So I think you're always better off giving it to them warts and all. Hmm. Um, you're, you're in much better position to make the argument that way. Um, I, I just think they're making a terrible mistake omitting that because it looks like it makes it look like they're afraid of it. And when you top onto that, the fact that we're in a – the way their procedures are, there's no cross-examination. There's no other perspective which is being offered. And then even when there's a, a piece of evidence that would be helpful to Trump, they go out of their way not to elicit it. It just looks rigged. Uh, and I don't understand it because it's it's kind of like why I don't understand the um, the cross examination or the absence of it. These witnesses are very strong. I don't know why anybody would like. Do you think that Jim Jordan could have laid a glove on, say, Bill Barr or even or, or even uh, Ms. Hutchinson from yesterday? I just don't understand what's the problem with. Um, and I don't mean to single out Jordan. All I'm saying right. is I I actually know Jordan a little bit, and I think. Jordan would have brains enough to understand that you don't go after every witness like you have to take the witness's head off. Like if you had Bill Barr on the stand, you wouldn't be trying to shake his account that he gave to the committee. You would be trying to change the subject into, for example, you know, the George Floyd riots and the fact that they had, you mm -hmm. know, they, they are emphasizing one set of political violence, but not looking at other ideological violence. You know, you don't, you don't take a witness on, you don't treat every single witness. There are some witnesses in trials where, yes, you have to dismantle their testimony, but most witnesses are not that way. So I, I just don't understand why they, the strength of their witnesses is such that I don't understand why they were fearful of having cross-examination. And I think the strength of their case is plenty strong enough that they can acknowledge the thing 
you know, the, the downsides and the weaknesses of the case. When you teach people how to try cases, you know, the senior prosecutors teach um, junior prosecutors, you know, the first thing when you're when you first start trying cases, what what sends you into orbit is the defense scores some points. And you always, as a senior person, I, and I was the junior person too. I had that, um, I had that same fright. But the thing is, you, what you learn is the cases that go to trial, you you don't get to win a hundred to nothing. Hmm. You know, the other side has points to score. They have they have cards to play. You win in the end because overall your your case is stronger. But you're much better off taking on the weak parts of the case than trying to hide them because they'll come out. Republicans have. A lot of Republicans have dismissed these hearings as illegitimate because Nancy Pelosi blocked, rejected Kevin McCarthy's uh, proposed Republic, two of his proposed Republican committee members, um, Jim Banks and uh, Jim Jordan. Right. You know, on the other hand, I think one of the things that have made these hearings compelling is that the members are pretty much in agreement on the facts of what happened that day and that it was that it was very bad and that Trump incited the riot. Do you think it would have been silly to involve someone like Jordan who as much as anyone pushed the stolen election theory that fueled the Capitol riot that day, and as a result would have an incentive to turn this into, you know, to either distract from the facts of the case, to turn it into a more of a media circus. Do you think it wasn't the right decision to exclude him? I do think it was a, it was the wrong decision to exclude them, him. Right. Because you have to, you have to realize that this is a, this is in a political context, right? I mean, if we're talking about a court of law, none of these people would be able to have the jobs they have, right? The the committee, you know, they all have a partisan perspective. There's no judge who's, uh, you know, uh, uh, objectively between both sides, making sure everyone follows the rules. Hmm. There's no expectation here that the fact finder is fair and impartial like there is in a jury trial. So there's a looseness in the joints in political hearings, congressional hearings that doesn't exist in the judicial system. And, you know, yes, Jordan has involvement here and that wouldn't have been good. Uh, but at the same time, you know, uh, you have uh, who's it, Jamie Raskin and, and uh, Chairman Thompson both objected in the past to the counting of electoral votes. And, you know, Adam Schiff has a long uh, checkered history with uh, with Trump in connection with the, the Russia thing. Um, you know, sitting on evidence that should have been disclosed earlier and, and all. So, you know, look, the, the, you could go down the list and every one of them, you could check a box that says that this is not the ideal person for a fair and objective hearing. But I don't think anybody expects that, number one. And number two, it's true that they're all unified um, in, in their view, the, the committee members, in their view of what happens. I think that makes for a better presentation in the sense that, you know, you, you can you can highlight the things that you think are, are dramatic and relevant for your from your perspective. I don't think it makes for a better hearing. I think what makes these things interesting is actually the adversarial interplay. And that also sharpens whatever disputes there are. I think we're going to come away from these hearings not quite sure how strong the case is. Because if you have a bunch of people who just agree on everything, they can make something that may not be that strong look a lot stronger than it is. You ended your piece in the National Review by writing that after all we learned from this hearing, things will not be the same after this. What did you mean by that? That you've now gotten a look at what Trump actually did. I think, you know, there's a there's a gulf. And I, I guess this may be this may be more of an emotional point than a rational point. But, you know. We all know in the abstract 
that whatever Trump was doing in the hours of the riot, it wasn't his job. You know, he was not doing the things that you want a commander in chief to do when there is an uprising at the seat of government. Right. Mm. But other than being able to draw that sweeping conclusion, we didn't have like the, the details of exactly what he was doing. It. It's a very different thing when you get to you get a bird's eye view of it that you didn't have before. It's kind of like it, it's the difference between if I told you about a let's say a mafia conversation where uh, a murder got ordered and you'd say, hmm, that sounds terrible. Then I play you the tape. Once you've seen it, you know, once you've not with my filter anymore, now you've gotten a look at it. Right. You never think about it the same way again. I mean, you may have had all kinds of ideas what Trump was up to, but if you hear about like, you know, he throws pl- he throws the porcelain against the wall. Now I know he didn't do that on January sixth, but they, you know, you get these stories about what went on in the White House and and how out of control it seemed. You're you're never going to look at it the same way as when you knew things must have been bad, but you really didn't have the details. Mm. Now Saul Weisenberg, uh, former deputy to Ken Starr, he I saw he told the New York Times that the hearing he called it uh, referred to it as a smoking gun, the evidence that was presented. Yep. And he said there isn't any question this establishes a prima facie case for his criminal culpability, Trumps, on seditious conspiracy charges. Yeah. What do you make of that? Having tried the last successful seditious conspiracy case, I think <laughs> it's really, and it's long ago and far away. It's almost thirty years now, but. Um, wow. Okay. I think the Justice Department made a terrible. I mean, they may get away with it, but the, I think they made a bad move going down this avenue, and it would be foolish to involve Trump in it. And here, here's the reason: um, if you look at the seditious conspiracy statute, you wouldn't believe this, Aiden. But when I used the statute in 1993, uh, and the trial was in 1995, this was a pretty hot number, which it, it, it isn't much anymore, but people were very upset about it. And, you know, I, I guess 30 years after all the terrorism and the fact that, uh, you know, we used it and it got invoked a couple of times afterwards, um, it, it doesn't uh, have the same impact on people. But back when we used it, um, people would say, oh, that sounds like those alien and sedition acts. I remember that. That's really bad. Um, and you know, Congress, of course, was aware of that even when it enacted the statute during the Civil War. And the the unfortunate thing about it is it says sedition, but it's only in the title of the statute. The sedition is not actually not in the charging language of the statute. So what it criminalizes is conspiracies in the United States to make war on the United States or oppose the government by force. So We've never had a seditious conspiracy case in the history of the United States where the defense could say, I thought I was acting on the instructions of the commander in chief of the United States. So, (laughs) um, you know, when I used the statute, it was against foreign jihadists who had a, you know, who had a toehold in the United States. And it was clear they were anti-American and they were they considered themselves to be at war with the United States. It was like a perfect it was almost as if the statute was written for our case. For that case, right? right? Yeah. Right. Whereas with, with this, you have the complication of who's the government? 
You know, these people, if you ask them, they would say they were patriotically trying to save the United States from evil from a people. stolen election, right. Right. And they were doing it at the behest of the head of state. Mm. You know, um, I just think that's a complication that that you don't need. And it's completely unnecessary because all you get out of seditious conspiracy, besides a lot of legal complications, is a 20-year potential criminal exposure. You get the same thing out of obstruction of Congress, and it's a it's a much simpler proof. Do you expect that we're going to see Trump prosecuted by the Justice Department on on any of these charges? I do now. Yeah, I I mean, I did before I I did before I heard this testimony, and I I want to be clear. I, my saying that I think it's likely doesn't mean it's a good idea. It may not. It, you know, it, as we discussed earlier, the downsides to doing this may outweigh the upsides. Um, but I, I thought, and I continue to think that, um, progressives want to see Trump prosecuted and the Biden administration has shown a, a predisposition to, to give them what they want, where they can. So like, for example, there's a whole legislative agenda that they'd like to be able to push through, right? But they can't right? because they, they don't have the votes for it. Whereas this is something you could give them. Um, now, I think Garland is smart enough to know that, um, and I, I, I'm, I'm not, um, I don't mean anything by that other than what I said. I, I actually, I know Garland, I knew him when he was a you know, at the Justice Department in the Clinton days while we were doing terrorism cases. And I liked him quite a bit because I thought he was a, a smart guy and he was very helpful. Um, and I think he's an institutionalist about the Justice Department, or at least he, he I think he, if you asked him that, he would probably say that's how he felt about it. And he knows that there's tremendous potential downsides for the Justice Department bringing a case like this. Uh, and there'd be, you know, Jack Goldsmith wrote this piece in the Times about a week ago where he questioned even whether Garland ought to be making this decision at all, given that we're talking about Biden's political opposition. So there's a lot of downside here. And I think they're smart enough to know that unless the case is really strong, they shouldn't bring it. Um, but that doesn't mean they won't do it if it's a bad idea, because if, you know, politically, if they think this is what this is what their base wants. You know, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of view out there, which I think is 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 right, even though I hate it, that elections now are base elections. You know, it used to be that you try to get stitched together as big a coalition of, of people as you can. Now the thought seems to be um, you got to throw red meat at the base and get them excited and get them to get the vote out. Um, and I, it, it's bad for our politics overall, but it's just it, it is the way it is. And this is something that the Biden administration can give them that the Republicans can't block. And I suppose there are really there are two separate questions. The one is whether or not the Justice Department would prosecute Trump. And the second is whether or not any prosecution would be successful. And I suspect that the latter is the one that's weighing on Merrick Garland more than anything. I don't know. I mean, yes, of course, if you bring the case, it's important to win it. Right. And it's going to be an it would be an unprecedented case. So who knows when it would get to trial? You know, there may be there may be tests that go through the appellate courts. There may be, you know, legal issues that are attendant to the prosecution of a, of a president or former president that wouldn't exist for other people. We'd have to see how it all played out. But I bet that they're 
quite confident they could get him convicted in the District of Columbia. Hmm. Um, you know, I, that's where they would bring the case. That's where there would be venue over the case. I imagine Trump would try to move it out of D.C. if it if it went that way. Uh, but I think they'd be very confident they could get a jury in Washington, D.C. to convict them. Do you think the, the most likely charge would be seditious conspiracy or one of the lesser ones? I don't think they'll I don't think they'll charge seditious conspiracy. I think Garland knows what the problems are with the with seditious conspiracy, which is why I was surprised the Justice Department even brought it against the, the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers. Right. I don't think they're going to want to go there with Trump. I mean, how do you explain to a jury that the president of the United States was at war with the United with States? With the own country. Demand, you right. Know, you know, it's just it's too complicated. Mm. Whereas, you know, intimidating Congress is a pretty straight line. Right. You know, so why would you want to buy on to the, the complications of that? One of the most stunning moments that uh, Hutchinson recounted in her testimony involved a story that she heard about Trump demanding to be taken to the Capitol. And she said that she heard that he lunged at the wheel of the SUV he was in. Now, according to a few reports, NBC News, ABC News, the Secret Service agents that were in the car uh, might dispute that testimony. And that's being seized on by Trump's defenders as evidence that Hutchinson is either being dishonest in her testimony or that it's all hearsay. What did you think of that element of her testimony and the response to it? I think it's um, I think it's overstated and it's a bigger problem for the committee potentially than it is for the witness. I don't think there's any reason to believe she lied. Hmm. And let's let's be clear on this because there's a lot of um, there's a lot of cavalier talk about this. She was very clear that she did not see what happened in the car. She was relating what she was told by other people. Right. So even if it turns out that the version of events that she uh, provided is not exactly how it happened, that doesn't mean she was lying. It could mean that she was told the wrong thing. She may have faithfully rendered what she was told, and it turns out that her source had it wrong. Now, there's reasons to wonder about that because she says when she was told what she was told, it was by this guy, Tony Ornato, who was the head of White House security operations, and standing right next to him was Bobby Engel, the Secret Service agent who had this skirmish with Trump, if it, if it happened. So you would think if Ornato was relating the details incorrectly, Engel was sitting right there and able to uh, contradict him. So that's one thing. The other thing is we learned, I think this was a Politico report that first um, reported this, but um, the committee has interviewed Engel, now, we didn't get to see the test. You know, they haven't released a transcript. We haven't seen the video. And this is, a, you know, it's another problem with the committee's process. But um, I, I find it hard to believe that Liz Cheney, who's very smart uh, and very able, as we saw yesterday, that was, a, that was a very skillful job of eliciting that testimony that, that she did. And they must have had to throw that together pretty quick. Yeah, right. So I, I thought that was a very impressive job. But I find it hard to believe that if Engel gave testimony in a in a deposition to the committee that was contradictory of what Hutchinson said, that Liz would have elicited that hearsay testimony from Hutchinson. I mean, why do that? I mean, right. It, um, so you would think that if they had that, if if his testimony went sideways from Hutchinson's, then they should either have not elicited that from Hutchinson or they should at least have confronted her with Engel's 
contradictory version. Mm -hmm. Um, But I wouldn't, I, I would just stress to people, this is a very small portion of her testimony. Most of her testimony that was very damaging for President Trump was based on things that she actually saw and heard. This is a hearsay account that y'all this is not like a hearsay account where when people dismiss things as hearsay it's usually like a witness heard some idle chatter that they you know eavesdropped on or happened to hear this is a very different situation this is a situation where you have a chain of command where people report things up the chain and the white house operations office was reporting to the chief of staff's office something that had just happened and the guy who was involved in it was standing there when when the story was related. So it's you can certainly understand why, you know, the committee would have thought if that, you know, if they don't have anything else that they've heard so far that contradicts this, you can certainly understand why they thought this was pretty reliable. You have a good witness. You know, she obviously is um, uh, capable and, and smart. Uh, she she comes across as earnest. And the circumstances under which this was reported seem like it would be reliable. Now, if it turns out that it's not and that people's testimony goes sideways, we need, we'd need to know why didn't the committee ask Engel about this in the first place? If they did, is he given a different version of events now? You know, I mean, you could, you could imagine all the different questions. But I don't leap to the conclusion that this makes Hutchinson's testimony unreliable or that or that she's somehow being dishonest. But I do think it, it goes to the the downsides that that a lot of us have emphasized about the committee's process. Right. You know, we need to see these other witnesses testimony. And we also heard yesterday from Liz Cheney that Mark Meadows and Rudy Giuliani asked for pardons and Trump ended up declining to dole out any pardons for for uh, any any action around the, the Capitol attack. But do those requests in your mind, do they show that Meadows and others knew that what they're doing could potentially be illegal? Well, that's one rational interpretation of it. What I what I think is wrong is Adam uh, 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 Kinzinger saying mm. at the hearing last week, which also addressed uh, pardons sought supposedly by members of Congress, uh, he closed the evidence portion of that or the testimony portion of that by saying, I can't think of any other reason why somebody would ask for a pardon other than that they knew they had committed a crime. And I think it's a perfectly rational uh, interpretation to say, well, I knew that our political opposition was about to take power in two weeks and that they were going to criminalize this aggressive politics that we played in connection with the election. So even though I didn't think it was a crime to be on the safe side, since I had a friendly president for two more weeks, I was hoping he'd pardon us. <laughs> do you do you have any sense of what's next for these committee hearings? Are we going to hear from Mark Meadows now? Well, I, you know, I, I get the sense that um, Meadows cooperated with the committee to a, to a great extent. I think that the Cheney and Thompson are both overstating um, what they what they frame as his his treachery, um, you know, Liz is a big defender of the uh, of the Bush Cheney administration, obviously, and it was the position of the Justice Department in that administration, just like in every administration, that the president's closest advisors have absolute immunity from testifying before 
Congress. That's it's not a matter of does the president invoke it. It's like that's the Justice Department's position for people who are in the position like Meadows was in. So what I th see Meadows as having done, and I don't think this would be as big of an issue if the committee. I mean, the the, the dynamic here is the committee's almost. Um, the committee, once the midterms happen, if the Republicans take over Congress, the committee is gone, right? Right. So they're in a rush. They don't want to litigate. Mm. In other circumstances, I think what, what Meadows did was he cooperated as much as he could cooperate. He gave him thousands of documents. He told them, you know, various things. But when it came to his communications with Trump, he wouldn't go into it because it, there's legal doctrine that says that he's got immunity from that. And I think in a normal circumstance that would have just been litigated, they'd have gone to they'd have gone to court and they'd have hashed it out. Here, they're anxious to get his testimony because you know, I mean, times are wasting for these guys. They're <laughs> going to be out of business uh, soon. Right. So I don't. I, I'm not. I I'm not as harsh with respect to to uh, Meadows because I think he really does have like co compare him to say uh, Steve Bannon, who really doesn't have a a plausible claim that, you know, Trump could invoke privilege mm. with respect to him. He wasn't even in, he was in a government official then. Um, but, you know, Meadows is in a very different, there's no higher or more intimate uh, aid of a president than the chief of staff. So I, I kind of understand where he's coming from. Uh, and I'm, I'm sorry, I'm getting far afield from what you asked. What happens next? <laughs> I think a, a lot is, a lot depends on, um, what are they going to do about what Secret Service is now raised? If Secret Service goes public and says this didn't happen, I think the committee has to respond to that. I also think now that the committee finally has some traction, I mean, it, to me, it seems like this testimony yesterday was very important and it got people's attention in a way perhaps that other testimony hasn't. If you're at that point, and especially if you've got a short lease on life like this committee does, I don't think you say – uh, we'll see you at the end of July. Right. Um, you know, I think it, it, it's in their interest to get right back at it. Mm. So, you know, they, they there's aspects of this. They say that they, you know, their next sessions are going to be directed toward the idea of tying Trump to the violence at the Capitol. And that was that's what they've indicated a couple of times where they're going next. Um, I, I think they'd be making a mistake if they take three weeks off. I think they should just get back to it while they have people's attention. Now, putting aside the criminal aspect of this, uh, the Washington Examiner editorial board said in response to this latest hearing that Trump is, quote, unfit to be anywhere near power ever again. Do you agree that Trump should not step foot in the White House again? Yeah, I've said that for a long time. I think it's very frustrating to me that they haven't burned him. Mm. I thought he should have been impeached. Um, I thought the committee, uh, the I thought the House did an incompetent job of investigating and pleading accurate articles of impeachment. I think they could have made it much more difficult for the Senate to acquit him on that nonsense argument that you can't impeach somebody who's, who's out of office. Leaving office, already. right? Yeah, out yeah. Of office, yeah. I mean, you know, the the model for uh, impeachment for the framers was the impeachment of Hastings by parliament, which was fairly contemporaneous to the, to the ratification of the constitution. And he was out of office for two years when, when parliament impeached him. Hmm. So, you know, if you're going to have a penalty in the constitution for, of disqualification, then that has to be able to be enforced. Right. Um, 
but it, but anyway, I I think this is what the committee is doing is the investigation Congress failed to do seventeen months ago, and I thought that Trump should have been impeached and disqualified. I was hoping Republicans would burn him. I don't want to litigate, you know, the good and the bad of Trump. To me, the bottom line here, you know, just as a as a conservative Republican who is alarmed by the trajectory of the country, Trump can never, ever again win a national election. Now, unfortunately, the dynamic of intra-party uh, politics is that you could see a path where he could win the Republican nomination, right? But he could never win a national election. The polls, I mean, he's, he's I think part of the reason the Democrats time these hearings the way they have is they'd like to run against Trump. They think Trump is like Biden's best chance of being reelected. So you would think if the Republicans were were smart, that simply the fact that he can't win in a November election would be enough not to nominate him in the first place. But we have crazy politics right now. Do you think that uh, Republican voters are starting to agree with you or do you fear that they're still on the Trump train? Yeah, no, I think it's been happening, Aiden. You know, it's it's but it, the the thing with it is it's too slow. Mm. It's like broken away. It's eroded too slowly. I mean, he's still right. got much more of a grip on it than but but you can see it's less of a grip than it was a year and a half ago. I just I'm very disappointed that it that it's taken uh, as long as it has. And it's and we're not anywhere there yet. I mean, the guy, for all I know, he may go out the fourth of July and you know, announce he's a candidate. And you're you're a contributor at Fox News. Have you faced any fury from viewers for for your position on this, or have you found that they're they're mostly amenable to your arguments? I don't. You know, I don't. I I, I just don't pay that much attention. Smart to that stuff. I mean, <laughs> well, no, I just. You know, the thing is, I come from. Um, you know, I don't come from journalism, right? My background is as a trial lawyer, mm. and where I come from. You know, number one, you have to be you have to be frank about what the weaknesses in your case are, and you have an obligation to the tribunal if you become aware of of information that is contrary to your position, you have to disclose it. So there's like all kinds of the place where I come from is not like the place I'm in now. Um, and if they get annoyed at me, I, I don't see how I'm any use to anyone as an analyst. Um, if I don't treat it like I would treat a fact pattern that came into my office when I was a, when I was a prosecutor, which is, you know, I have a very strong political point of view, but I'm pretty clinical about legal stuff. You know, your the politics of of your prosecutor or your lawyer um, shouldn't matter any more than it does your you know your plumber or your uh, chiropractor. You know it, it's it's a it's a profession, and you figure out what the facts are, you figure out what the law is, and you try to apply it, and try to leave the other stuff at the door. So when I get asked to do legal stuff, I, I still do it. I still do it the same way I always did it. Andy McCarthy, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Aiden. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Interview. Please subscribe to The Interview on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And check out coverage of my conversation with Andy McCarthy on Mediaite.com. Mm-hmm.